The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On April 8, 1990, ABC debuted its groundbreaking new television series, Twin Peaks. Set among a picturesque and rugged mountainous terrain, the unassuming town of Twin Peaks emerged, its idyllic facade concealing a multitude of hidden secrets lurking just beneath the surface. All semblance of harmony within the small town is shattered when one of its female residents is found murdered under suspicious circumstances. At first, everyone in the tight-knit community is a potential suspect, but when investigators arrive, they begin uncovering details about the victim's life that only raise more questions than answers. Just four months after its pioneering series premiere, a shockingly similar series of events took place in the California town of Camp Nelson a tiny, isolated mountain community in the Sierra Nevada range. As Oscar Wilde once famously wrote, life imitates art far more than art imitates life. Join me now as we examine the mysterious murder at Camp Nelson Lodge and the unbelievable twists and turns that came in its wake. You'll hear how greed, blackmail, and the need to tie up loose ends resulted in a second murder that finally unraveled the mystery at Camp Nelson. Or did it? Very few places on Earth have captured the public's collective imagination quite like Southern California. Beautiful beaches, palm trees, surfing, and glamorous celebrity culture. It's no secret why so many artists have written songs about wanting to travel there. From the Beach Boys, Led Zeppelin, to the Mamas and the Papas, even the Beverly Hillbillies knew it was the place to be. But in 1990, there was one place that built itself as having the best view in Southern California, the Camp Nelson Lodge, and it was nowhere near the sand and surf. Instead, this time-worn lodge was about as far away from the hustle and bustle of big city life as it could possibly be about 150 miles due north of Los Angeles, nestled high in the Sierra Nevadas at 5,000 feet. The town of Camp Nelson's approximately 100-year-round residents are surrounded by breathtaking mountain views, lush green meadows, and towering majestic sequoia trees. Whether or not everyone would agree it's the best view in all Southern California, it certainly does look like a scene from a fairy tale. And because of its fairy tale setting, the Camp Nelson Lodge was becoming an increasingly popular location for wealthy city dwellers to host a destination wedding. One of those weddings took place on Saturday, August 18, 1990, 
and it was exactly the dream wedding that Bride had imagined. It went off without a hitch, great music, great food, perfect atmosphere, everything she'd hoped for. On more than one occasion, the bride went out of her way to compliment the staff and tell the lodge's owner, Bonnie Hood, just how wonderful everything had been. Eventually, the night wore down, and everyone retired to where they'd be spending the night. The bridal party to their lovely rustic motel rooms on the lodge's property. Bonnie Hood went back to her own private cabin, and the rest of the local staff went back to their homes. It was a peaceful night, and all was quiet at Camp Nelson. No sounds of traffic or sirens off in the distance. Only the rhythmic chirping of crickets, the breeze through the pine trees, and the tranquil, trickling lullaby of nearby Nelson Creek. But this symphony of mountain silence was suddenly interrupted around 3.15 in the morning, when three gunshots echoed from one of the cabins. A call was placed to 911, but because of the lodge's remote location, first responders to the scene weren't the police. Instead, it was EMTs and local volunteer firefighters. After arriving, they entered the pitch-black cabin where the shooting had taken place and turned on the lights, revealing a gruesome scene. There on the bed lay Bonnie Hood, the lodge's owner fatally shot through her temple. In the next room, they found the lodge's caretaker, Rudy Manuel, laying on the floor next to the phone he'd used to dial 911. He'd also been shot in the head, but miraculously, Rudy was somehow still alive. After being shot, Rudy had used all his remaining strength to crawl to the phone and make the call. Once emergency services arrived, Rudy was quickly placed in an ambulance and raced off to the hospital. When detectives arrived on the scene, they believed they could rule out robbery as the motive because nothing of value appeared to have been taken, which now left detectives with the chilling conclusion. Someone must have gone into that cabin specifically to murder Bonnie Hood. But who? The search to this answer, to that question, would lead investigators on a wild journey, a journey that would culminate in more death and one of the strangest cases we've ever covered. To help us tell this story, we reached out to true crime author Mark Pinsky for his insight. Mark has written two brilliant true crime books. His first, Matter on the Mountain, about the unsolved 1970 murder of Nancy Morgan in North Carolina, and his most recent, Drifting into Darkness, about the Springford murders in Montgomery, Alabama, which was the basis for our episode 124, Deadly Path to Enlightenment. At the time of Bonnie Hood's murder, Mark was a reporter for the Los Angeles Times and would go on to cover the subsequent saga for the paper. But news of Bonnie's murder wasn't the first time Mark had heard her name. In fact, she and her wealthy husband, Jim Hood, were already quite well known down in his neck of the woods. In 1989, I was working for the Los Angeles Times in Orange County, California, and we had a rivalry with another newspaper, one of the few places in North America where two more or less evenly matched morning newspapers went head to head against each other. And the other newspaper was called the Orange County Register, and we fought them every day, tooth and nail. And in 1989, 
I opened the register and there was an article, a long feature story about Jim and Bonnie Hood and what a modern, wonderful couple they were. Just this lovely, lovely modern marriage. The article in the Orange County Register was the type of human interest story that was typical for the paper at that time. A glowing society piece highlighting the unique lifestyles of two of its high-profile Newport Beach residents. Jim and Bonnie Hood were a golden couple in Orange County, California. They were attractive physically. They got together as college sweethearts in San Jose State. When they got graduated from college, they had a really adventurous life. Jim had a civilian job in Vietnam. Bonnie became a flight attendant for flights going in and out of Vietnam. Later, when Jim and Bonnie returned to Orange County, they pursued careers in real estate and thrived during the 1980s economic boom. Now they were very successful. They had his and her Mercedes. They had a yacht. They had a beautiful house in Newport Beach. They had two lovely children who they were raising in Orange County. And most of their neighbors thought they were the perfect couple. Despite becoming a big shot developer, Jim never quite lost his appetite for adventure. He continued taking trips to places like the Amazon and even went to Pamplona to run with the bulls. But Bonnie's dreams weren't as adrenaline-filled as Jim's. In fact, she had her heart set on the peace and tranquility of the mountains. She had this dream that she wanted to restore a lodge, and Bonnie, as the child, went there pretty regularly with her with her family. And I think she said that it was the greatest time of her life. She was happiest when she was up at, up at Camp Nelson. And she carried that love with her as she moved out into the, you know, the greater and wider world. She had this dream of restoring it and making it a real kind of a second home. Every summer since the kids were born, the Hood family had taken a trip up to Camp Nelson to enjoy the mountain air. But one day in 1987, they saw the Camp Nelson Lodge was for sale. And Jim, because he loved Bonnie so much, he said, okay, I'll buy this thing for you. He bought it for about three quarters of a million dollars. It was closed, failed at that point. He bought it for her and they arranged that she would go up there for five days during the week and supervise the restoration of this lodge, which she loved so much. Camp Nelson was a fairly rudimentary group of lodges, small lodges, a motel, a bar, and a small general store up in Tulare County. It's fairly isolated. It's adjacent to the Sequoia National Forest, a beautiful, verdant place. It takes a while to get there. It's a long, winding road to get there, but it's beautiful, and there's a lot of horseback riding, and it's a, it's a very outdoors place. Because Jim still had his development business to run, it didn't make sense for the whole family to make the move to the camp. Besides, their children, ages 11 and 14, were still in school. And to them, it made more sense for Bonnie to pursue a sort of commuter marriage. In fact, the title of the Register's feature article was The Long Distance Mom. She spent the weekdays up there restoring this, this lodge. Meanwhile, Jim stays at home with the two teenage kids. They do everything they can to accommodate Bonnie. And to, Jim would take care of the kids who were in school down in, the, in Orange County. Uh, but they were keeping constant contact with long-distance phone calls and faxes, and it was a, a wonderful modern arrangement how Bonnie kept helping raising the children while Jim stayed home, and, and every other weekend, the whole family went up to, uh, up to Camp Nelson to share time together. 
or she would come back down to Orange County for a weekend. And so it appeared to be a, the golden couple devoted to one another, being very successful. By 1990, it appeared Bonnie's labor of love up in Camp Nelson was starting to pay off, with Jim even being quoted in the paper as saying that the lodge was starting to generate a positive cash flow. Bonnie had had some success with the restoration and the marketing of Camp Nelson. One of the ways that Bonnie found to help jumpstart the financial situation up at the lodge was to turn it into a, a venue for destination weddings. And that involved filling up the whole resort with the families of the wedding and also selling a lot of uh, alcohol, which has a very high margin of, of profit. While Bonnie was making strides, restoring the lodge to its former glory, not every local up in Camp Nelson was ecstatic about sharing their once hidden gem with the rest of the outside world. There was a, a, a feeling that she was an outsider, even though she had been there as a child. There was a feeling that even though the lodge had gone broke, people weren't so sure they wanted it to succeed according to her terms, which is to say that it would be a, a kind of hideaway for the wealthy from LA their morals, their drugs, whatever. I think people wanted to have work, but I think they were suspicious of an outsider and the changes that she wanted to make to the lodge and more particularly, the people she wanted to bring up to the lodge. While Bonnie may have been seen as an unwanted outsider to some, to others, she was bringing in some much needed vibrance to a town on the outskirts of civilization. So when detectives began investigating the murder of Bonnie Hood, they needed to piece together exactly what had happened to see if they could identify who in Camp Nelson might have had the motive to kill Bonnie Hood. They began by interviewing the only direct eyewitness to the shooting, Rudy Manuel, the man who'd been in the room and somehow survived a gunshot to his own head, which is when they began to get a picture of what had taken place. At three o'clock the next morning, Bonnie was in her lodge room, a, a two bedroom lodge where she lived. The door burst open and an intruder in the dark confronted Bonnie. And I don't know whether he expected to that she would be alone or not, but she was with someone else. She was with, with a man named Rudy Manuel, who'd been working as a handyman and assistant for, to her for a long time in helping to restore the place. And there are various accounts of, of what happened, all coming from Rudy, changed the story a little bit over time, but this intruder was armed and he, he had a weapon. He was pointing at the couple who were in bed together. And for some reason, he told Rudy Manuel to get out of the way of someone he wanted to shoot. And the way Rudy tells the story, he was sort of heroic and said he wasn't gonna separate himself and let this woman be hurt. So the gunfire started. The order were still not clear as to who got hit first, but Bonnie was shot fatally in bed. Rudy was grazed on the head but not killed. He may have pretended he was dead, I'm not sure. And he crawled out of the bedroom into the living room where he called 911, by which time the, the intruder had gone. And the police arrived, the sheriffs arrived, the EMTs arrived, and Bonnie was pronounced dead at the scene. As detectives began hearing Rudy's version of events, alarm bells began going off as they put two and two together. Bonnie had been in her cabin in the middle of the night with a man who most definitely was not her husband. Rudy told his story at that time as much as he could remember, and uh, he admitted that he was having an affair with Bonnie Hood, that he was in bed with her, 
when the intruder came in. And so that's why he was a target as well as she was, although he was not really sure that he was an intended target as well as Bonnie Hood. In cases like this, where a homicide victim was allegedly having an affair, suspicion naturally turns to the jilted spouse. But authorities were able to confirm that Jim Hood had been nowhere near Camp Nelson that night. Instead, he'd been more than four hours away in Newport Beach. Besides, handsome Jim Hood, who could easily be mistaken for the lead actor in The Princess Bride, Carrie Elwes, he just didn't match the description of the shooter Rudy described, a white male between 30 and 35 years old, curly light brown hair, rough looking, and missing one of his bottom teeth. It seemed more than reasonable to cross Jim Hood's name off the list of potential suspects. For the time being, they decided to focus on interviewing people they knew had been at the lodge that night, staff members, and anyone else who'd been staying there. That's when they began noticing many of the accounts that night sharing a common thread, a mysterious stranger who'd been at the lodge bar that night. And when they asked more questions about the stranger, they discovered he matched the description Rudy had already given of the killer. But absolutely nobody knew who this stranger was. There was, however, one promising lead. For some reason, the stranger decided to bring his own bottle of beer to the lodge, something any bartender in the world would take notice of. Fortunately, I guess for police, the bartenders thought something was amiss. And when this guy left the bar, he left the bottle and the bartender saved the bottle. It was later recovered. The bottle was sent off to the crime lab to be tested for fingerprints. Eventually, the lab came back with a positive ID, a man named Bruce Beecham. When they ran the print, it took them to Bruce Beecham, who had no reason to be up in Camp Nelson because he's from Fontana, California, down in Southern California. This guy had a reputation as a biker, as a drug dealer, as a pretty tough customer, a pretty dark character. So then when they, they brought um, Bruce Beecham in and asked him, he said, oh yeah, I was there. I was at the bar. I was up there to meet a woman and wouldn't give the name of the woman or the circumstances of the woman. It was kind of a fishy situation. And the only physical evidence they had was this guy who didn't belong up there, who was not invited to the wedding, whose fingerprint was on a bottle at that time. Detectives didn't exactly believe Bruce's story, that he traveled all the way up to the camp to meet up with a mysterious woman who'd apparently never shown up for the date. A long way to drive, only to get stood up. So they went right to the source to find out if Bruce was their guy and asked Rudy Manuel. They put him in a photo lineup for Rudy Manuel to look at and Rudy Manuel said, he's the guy. So I guess the local police felt, well, we've got this guy who doesn't belong here, number one. We've got his fingerprint to prove that he was here. And best of all, for a prosecutor, we have an eyewitness who ID'd the guy. So I think they must have felt it was a slam dunk case. Now, of course, Beecham didn't admit anything. He said, I had nothing to do with the murder. I don't, you know, I don't know Bonnie Hood. I don't know anything about this. And he just sort of stonewalled it. So I think in the beginning, both the cops and the media did not connect some of the potential dots in this murder. Police were fairly convinced they had their man, 
After all, it's hard to argue with an eyewitness who'd confronted the perpetrator face to face. Bruce was soon arrested and charged with the first degree murder of Bonnie Hood. But there was still a massive gaping hole in the story. What possible motive could this stranger, a random biker with a rap sheet, have for killing Bonnie? Why her? It wasn't long before detectives uncovered a crucial detail about Bruce that would frame the investigation in a whole new and disturbing light. They did a little bit more research and they found out that he had worked at various times for Jim Hood in Fontana, work around his development activities. It turned out Bruce was actually an employee of Bonnie's husband, Jim, a fact that seemed far too remarkable to be a simple coincidence. As they began investigating Bonnie's murder from this new angle, they discovered there might be more to the story of Jim and Bonnie Hood than a wonderful modern arrangement as described in the pages of the Orange County Register. Detectives began wondering if perhaps they'd been a bit too premature in crossing Jim's name off their suspect list, and a new theory was developing that Jim Hood had hired Bruce to murder his wife. But again, why? The issue of motive is what had been stumping authorities for so long when it came to Bruce. But when it came to Jim, detectives believed they'd found plenty. For starters, Rudy Manuel was claiming he'd been having an affair with Bonnie, something that seemed to be corroborated by the rumor mill up at Camp Nelson. I think it was pretty clear other people at the lodge that they were close. They would go riding together apparently pretty regularly. And I don't know what happened on the rides, what didn't happen on the rides, but I think people knew. I mean, once you acknowledge that that was happening, that begins to color the way you look at the whole case. If in fact you accept that they were having an affair and people knew about it, that Jim might have known about it, I think it leads you down a road that inevitably deposits you at Jim Hood's front door. Detectives were also starting to doubt that Jim and Bonnie's financial situation was as rosy as they'd originally been led to believe. Ultimately though, it cost a lot more to put together. And as Bonnie's time up there continued, she was basically spending about $300,000 a year trying to fix it up and restore it. And at the same time, I guess unfortunately for the family, Jim was having some financial difficulties and he seemed concerned that that camp was becoming a sort of money pit for the family. And it put the family's financial situation in some jeopardy. It appeared that not only was the lodge causing financial stress, it was also becoming a source of tension in the relationship. When a, a member of Bonnie's family died and left her a quarter of a million dollars, there was apparently some disagreement within the family as to where that quarter of a million dollars should go. Should it go to Jim's business difficulty to alloy that? Or should it go to Bonnie to help pay for the, the renovation of Camp Nelson? All these details began adding up in detectives' minds. They became convinced Jim had motive to hire Bruce to murder his wife. The consensus was that it, it was more likely that it was for financial gain than because of her infidelity. We don't even know if he knew about Rudy. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I think Jim Hood was mostly about money. And, you know, there was a life insurance policy on, on Bonnie. 
Authorities believed that he was in financial stress and it was exacerbated by the, by the lodge itself that had become a money pit. Detectives now had a grand theory they believed explained Bonnie's murder, that Jim hired Bruce to murder his wife in order to collect insurance payouts and other financial benefits. But there was one major problem. Outside of pure conjecture, there was absolutely zero evidence to back any of it up. Still, they were absolutely convinced of their theory, so they came up with a plan. The standard procedure in a case like that is you, you know, if you think you got the trigger man, you say, who hired you? Offer him a deal, you know. Beecham rolled the dice when he was tried. He could have gone to them, or his lawyer could have gone to them and made it an offer, but he decided for some reasons to stonewall it and to say, I didn't do it and nobody hired me to do it as well. Bruce wasn't willing to reach out himself and make any sort of a deal, which seemed a bit odd, considering the case against him appeared fairly open and shut. So prosecutors decided to make a gamble. They'd wait until after Bruce was found guilty before trying to strike any deal themselves. That way, they'd have more leverage. I think prosecutors were so sure they had a conviction that once they had a conviction, but before they were, there was sentencing, because there was still the death penalty in California at that time, they could then maybe come to this guy, Beecham, and say, if you want to avoid the needle, you can help us out and tell us who was it who hired you. I mean, logically, if you were a betting person at the front of the trial, you would have said, Bruce Beecham would, would get convicted, and they'll be able to get, the, get what they wanted, and they'll be heroes. But it didn't work out that way. When it came time for Bruce's trial, Prosecutors were forced to abandon their hitman-for-hire theory entirely. They simply didn't have any hard evidence, though early court documents reveal that it was indeed their original strategy. Besides, how could they tell a jury that Bruce had been hired by Jim when they hadn't arrested, charged, or even formally accused Jim of any wrongdoing whatsoever? They couldn't, so they went with Plan B. At trial, Prosecutors claim Bruce's motive for murder had simply been robbery, a theory that didn't fit with the evidence, a theory they themselves didn't really believe. Jim Hood was called to the stand to testify, but he did his best to cast suspicion away from Bruce, instead insinuating that local drug dealers, or perhaps crooked cops, had been responsible. The prosecution's case also fell apart when their star witness, Rudy Manuel, changed his story on the witness stand and flatly denied he and Bonnie had been having an affair, in stark contrast to original statements he'd given to police. He was also now claiming that Bonnie had wrestled with Bruce before he shot her, a new detail he'd never mentioned before. Was he lying then, or was he lying now? Either way, his credibility was shot. Without a credible witness, the only thing left the prosecution could actually prove was that Bruce had been at the lodge that night drinking beer, which certainly isn't a crime. How could they have blown the case? I mean, Rudy's a little wobbly, but he was an eyewitness, number one. And two, they had the fingerprint. And three, why was Beecham up at that lodge? I don't think anyone expected that Bruce Beecham would be acquitted for this murder when it seemed like he was the only guy who could have done it. On March 29, 1991, Bruce Beecham was found not guilty 
becoming the first person in Tulare County history to be acquitted in a murder trial. Blindsided by the verdict, the prosecution was forced to completely shut down any future plans of going after Jim Hood for potentially being involved as well. But there was actually a much bigger consequence to the verdict, something nobody realized at the time. Since Bruce had been found not guilty, that meant he could never be charged for the same crime again. A legal situation known as double jeopardy, and apparently Bruce was the only one who realized what a golden opportunity it was. It's get out of jail free and extortion for free, which set in motion the second murder. After his acquittal, Bruce returned to his home in San Bernardino County, attempting to pick up the pieces of his life. He even told reporters after his release that he was hoping Jim Hood wouldn't hold the trial against him and that he intended to ask for his old job back working construction for him. Before long, Bruce was back to working odd construction jobs for Jim's business partner. Jim Hood, for his part, returned to his life in Newport Beach and his construction business in San Bernardino. His two teenage children adapted as best as they could to the tragic situation, but it was made all the worse due to the rumors of Jim's alleged involvement, which had been printed in the papers. Over the next 11 months, things eventually quieted down and the public had mostly forgotten about the case entirely. But everything changed on March 2nd, 1992, when the tables would turn in the most unexpected way imaginable. On that day, following a phone conversation between Jim Hood and Bruce Beecham, the context of which we don't really know. We just know that there was a phone conversation. Sometime thereafter, Bruce Beecham came to Jim Hood's construction office up in Fontana and was admitted to the office by the receptionist. Receptionist never mentioned any threatening remarks or whether he seemed to be menacing or angry or whether he appeared to have a weapon. She just said she told Jim Hood he was there and Hood told him to come on back. So. Beecham comes into his office, the secretary goes back to her work, and suddenly she hears shots. In the end, we learn there are seven shots. Seven shots, all fired from the same weapon, a Glock 9mm handgun Jim Hood had been keeping in his office desk. Laying on the floor, in a pool of his own blood, was the body of Bruce Beecham. Shortly thereafter, uh, Jim Hood gets on 911 and sounds upset or fake upset, we're not really sure, and saying that a guy tried to kill him, he was still moving, and in order to save his life, he shot Bruce Beecham. It's not an emergency. It's an emergency, sir. Anyway, it's an emergency. And Jim Hood sounded kind of hysterical, or if you're a cynical person, fake hysterical, or make-believe hysterical. But he said that his life had been threatened, and in order to save his life, he shot this guy. And that's about all we know until the police arrived. When police arrived, Jim told them he'd been forced to shoot Bruce out of self-defense. And when they looked at the crime scene, they found Bruce lying on the floor with a 357 Magnum revolver still gripped in his right hand. Jim's story was simple. Bruce had drawn his weapon first, but Jim had been able to grab his own gun and shoot before Bruce had a chance to fire. 
the police looked at the crime scene without tipping their hand, but they looked at the crime scene, and from the very beginning, the physical setup in that office suggested to them that the story that Jim Hood was telling was not true. I think the amount of blood on the floor and the fact that Beecham had been shot seven times before he could get off a single shot, according to, to Jim Hood, I think set their antenna up that something maybe wasn't right or correct about the story that Jim Hood told about what happened. The first thing police wanted to know was why Bruce had shown up at Jim's office in the first place. A few months prior, Bruce's brother-in-law had stolen some construction equipment from one of Jim's job sites, but was later caught and arrested. Bruce was apparently angry with Jim for helping to send his brother-in-law off to jail. According to Jim, Bruce had been making threatening phone calls because he'd become convinced Jim was trying to implicate him in the burglary as well, something that was later corroborated by answering machine messages that had been left by Bruce. On the day of the killing, Jim had talked to Bruce on the phone and asked him to come to his office so they could talk it out. Jim knew enough about Bruce Beecham's past as a biker, as an alleged drug dealer. I think he knew what a character he was dealing with. But at the same time, if he knew that, why did he let him in? I think um, the question is how, if as Jim Hood said, this guy had the drop on him with his own gun, how did it end up that Beecham was shot? I mean, how did, does that work exactly? How this sort of you know, innocent civilian, Jim Hood, this you know, victim, when confronting a biker with a violent past, was able to get off seven shots before this biker could get off one shot? I mean, he's the thug and he's outshot seven to zero by a civilian? Detectives started to doubt Jim's story and when they looked closer at the crime scene itself, they found some things that just didn't seem to add up. For one, they didn't think the blood patterns on the floor matched the description of what Jim had said had shook down. There was also two other pieces of evidence that contradicted Jim's story as well. The first was that it seemed strange that when police discovered Bruce's body, he was still holding on to the 357 revolver. And the thought was that if he had been shot seven times, including once in the spinal cord, he wouldn't have had the strength and the coordination to hang on to that gun. It would have flown out of his hand or dropped when he hit the floor. But here he was on the floor, laying above bloodstains that were, did not line up with where he was shot, with a firm grip on this pistol. And as we later learned, it was in the wrong hand. Not only was Bruce still holding onto the pistol when police arrived, he was holding the pistol in his right hand, but Bruce was left-handed, a fact that was well-documented. Detectives concluded Jim must have planted the revolver in Bruce's hand after he'd shot him, which could only mean one thing. Jim Hood had murdered Bruce Beecham in cold blood. In a stunning twist of events, Jim was arrested and charged with murdering the man who'd been acquitted of murdering his wife. For prosecutors, the trial of Jim Hood, which began in October 1992, would be their opportunity to finally formally accuse him of hiring Bruce Beecham to murder his wife. 
They didn't intend on making the same mistake they'd made in Tulare County by not telling the jury their real theory behind the killing. Instead, they laid it all out. They asserted that Jim Hood had hired Bruce to kill Bonnie Hood back in 1990 for financial gain. Mr. Hood had his fingers in so many pies that even though he claimed in many instances to be a multimillionaire, in fact, he was in a precarious financial position. And it is our uh, belief that one of the reasons that ultimately he hired Bruce Beecham to kill Bonnie was that uh, uh, he was having a serious problem financially and could benefit from insurance policies on her life. And after Bruce's acquittal in his own murder trial, he realized he could blackmail Jim for even more money by threatening to go public with the truth. But this time, they had a witness who could corroborate their theory, Bruce's wife, Sharon Beecham. She said that Beecham told her that Jim Hood had paid him $50,000 to kill Bonnie. Now, $50,000 for people like maybe you and me is a lot of money, but it's a fraction of what it could be. Beecham realized what he had, and he had a golden ticket. Sharon claimed her husband confessed everything to her after she'd found large stacks of cash hidden in his bedroom, including that he'd been hired to kill Bonnie Hood. I was cleaning our bedroom, and we had a big four-poster waterbed, a king-size waterbed, and I was cleaning back underneath the headboard, and there was an envelope in there. When I pulled it out, there was $10,000 cash in it. And I asked him what it came from, and uh, at that time, he didn't want to answer me. I asked him if it had anything to do with Bonnie Hood, and he told me yes. And I asked him if he did it, and uh, if he had killed her, and he told me yes. According to her, Bruce was fully planning on blackmailing Jim, along with writing a tell-all book about what had happened. But Sharon wasn't exactly the most credible witness. She herself had a long rap sheet and was caught making a few demonstrably false statements on the stand. She also had a personal financial incentive to be making her claims, as she was filing a wrongful death lawsuit against Jim. So had Bruce really confessed to Sharon about being a hitman? It would be up to the jury to decide. The irony of the entire situation was that for Bruce, it really wouldn't have mattered whether or not any of it was even true. He'd gotten the golden ticket either way. Even if both Jim and Bruce were truly 100% innocent in regards to Bonnie's murder, it still didn't really matter in the context of potential blackmail. Jim would have known if Bruce came out and publicly accused him. Everyone would believe Bruce, including law enforcement. If he were to do at that point roll on Hood and go into trial, you couldn't dismiss him because of his criminal record by saying he has nothing to gain. I mean, it, it, why, why would he do it? I mean, the lawyer on the other side would obviously try to undermine his credibility by talking about his criminal record and what a bad person he was, blah, blah, blah. But the jurors could say, well, why, why is he here then? Why, what made him come forward and do this? We have no proof of extortion. We have no proof of this or that. And it's very simple. It's not like a complicated criminal case or complicated civil case where the jury has to pay really close attention to find out what happened. 
If you've got a guy who said, he hired me to, to kill his wife and I did, any moron in the jury box would figure, well, I don't have to stand on one leg and look on an angle to, to see how this happened. It's pretty clear how it happened. Theoretically, he has nothing to gain. And I think Jim would recognize that really very early on. According to the prosecution, Bruce held this incredible leverage over Jim's head and was trying to extort even more money out of him. And the best part for Bruce, because of double jeopardy, he could now admit to being Bonnie's hitman without even so much as risking a prison sentence. To further bolster their theory, the prosecution claimed that Bruce was exactly the kind of person Jim would have reached out to to illegally take care of his problems for him. In fact, they were able to demonstrate that Jim had asked Bruce to do some dirty work in the past as well. What came out in the trial was that at one point, Jim Hood wanted to put up a sign advertising the shopping center that was coming to that part of, of Fontana. But the view of the sign was blocked by eucalyptus trees, which are protected under California state law. Hood hired Beecham to cut eucalyptus trees in the dark of night so he could put up his sign advertising the shopping center that he was working on. And that just gives you an idea of the kind of relationship they had that Hood would feel comfortable asking him to do this, and Beecham would feel comfortable taking Hood's money and doing this. If, in fact, Bruce Beecham had done all these illegal things on Jim Hood's behalf, it would seem logical that if Jim Hood wanted to do something big and bad, this guy was trouble, he was not afraid of violence, he was not afraid of doing illegal things. No one ever that I heard in the trial suggested he had killed anybody else beforehand, that's a red line to cross, but he was certainly a candidate to do something like that. Bruce had a history of being sort of a fixer for Jim, a person who wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty. So according to the prosecution, when Jim decided to get rid of Bonnie, he turned to his most reliable criminal employee. The only problem was his fixer had realized just how precarious Jim's position had become. He had leverage he intended to use to squeeze as much money out of Jim as possible. At that point, Jim Hood formed the intent to kill Bruce Beecham, and he had to reel him in into a situation where Jim Hood could get a clear shot at him. I think Jim Hood saw his world collapsing or about to collapse because if this guy rolled on him, he was finished. And I think he panicked. This is not a criminal mastermind here. I think this is someone who felt his whole world was about to collapse. Either he was gonna have to pay this guy money and money and money and money, which is the way extortion and blackmail work, or he has to solve the problem. And the only way I think he could solve the problem was to lure this guy into his office and hope the guy did not come in really with a gun. For the jury, there could be no doubt that a murder-for-hire theory was both incredibly captivating and salacious. But as Jim Hood sat in the courtroom listening to the prosecution, he seemed confident and he waited for the opportunity for his defense team to present their case. I would say the impression he gave when I first saw him sitting at the defense table was a kind of a um, a smug, satisfied person who had only known success up to that point, had only been lauded for everything he'd done, 
And I think he felt that the jurors would not imagine that someone who was as good looking as him, as successful as him, as wealthy as they thought he was, could do something as horrible as this to this lowlife guy. I think he thought the jurors would identify with him rather than Bruce Beecham. And having identified with him would then be more likely to give credence to his account of what happened, as opposed to Beecham, who can, couldn't say anything and who had a reputation and a record, criminal record. I think he was smug, self-satisfied and confident that he'd gotten everything he'd wanted so far in his life, that it would not all go away, would not all vanish in a, in a moment. But it wasn't just what Mark Pinsky had seen inside the courtroom that helped form his opinion of the man on trial for murder. He'd also run into Jim while covering another story for the Los Angeles Times during the trial. There was a new store that was opening at one of the fancy shopping centers in Orange County. And it was, you know, music and festival and food and stuff like that. So I was sent out to do this innocent feature and I go down there in Newport Beach and I'm taking notes and talking to people and I look around and there's Jim Hood. And he's got like two blondes, one on each arm. I'm thinking, this guy's on, on trial for murder, you know? What is he doing down here in public with two other women? But the arrogance of some of these people is, is incredible. When it came time for Jim to present his defense, he took the witness stand and told his own version of what had happened the day Bruce had been shot. His defense team knew that none of the salacious accusations about Bruce's history or Bonnie's murder really mattered as long as they could prove to the jury that Jim had acted in self-defense on the day of the shooting. After all, he wasn't actually on trial for Bonnie's murder. According to Jim, Bruce came into his office and within seconds pulled out a gun, but Jim reacted quickly, grabbed his own gun, and shot the man threatening his life. He even stood before the courtroom and painstakingly demonstrated on a mannequin exactly how the shooting had occurred. In response, the prosecution did their best to refute Jim's story by providing expert witnesses to disprove the impossibilities of Jim's account compared to physical evidence. In the end, the jury wasn't able to reach a unanimous verdict and were hung 11 to 1. It's often said, mostly theoretically by defense lawyers, that all it takes is to convince one person on the jury of your innocence. In Jim Hood's murder trial, that turned out to be exactly the case. Jim Hood had survived his first murder trial by the skin of his teeth, but prosecutors weren't going to let Jim get away that easily and took him to trial for a second time. At Jim's second trial, the prosecution decided to change up their strategy. They had realized their mistake had been asking jurors to focus on two murders instead of just one that mattered, the murder of Bruce Beecham. They reasoned that days upon days of complicated testimony about Bonnie Hood's murder had unnecessarily muddied the waters of what should have been a very simple and easy to prove case. The prosecutors down in Fontana said to themselves, let's not make this too complicated for the jurors. Let's not stand or fall on the, on the hired killing part of Bonnie. Let's just stick with what we have, what's in the frame, what's in the room, what the physical evidence says. 
the physical evidence that they had in the Fontana office, I think they felt was sufficient and simple enough not to worry about motive too much, but to emphasize the facts on the floor of that office building could, could only support one scenario. And they don't wanna make it too complex for the jurors. If they just confine the area of concern to the office in Fontana, they're on steady ground. Nothing's gonna move underneath them. All that we can prove to you is that he did it. The hard facts in the case were indeed on the side of the prosecution. Bloodstains on the floor didn't match Jim's account. Bruce was still holding on to the gun. The gun was in the wrong hand. Forensic experts were also able to demonstrate that the blood patterns on the gun, as well as Bruce's hand, indicated the gun had been planted on Bruce's body after the murder. Still, Jim Hood again tried his best to explain away the mountain of inconsistencies. The only problem was, in order to counterpunch against the prosecution's claims, Jim Hood was forced to change some of the important details he'd given during his first trial. When the second trial came, Hood changed his story to accommodate the physical evidence. But that's when the prosecution brought the jurors from the first trial in to say, no, he changed his story. That's not what he told us in the first trial. In order to demonstrate to the new jury that Jim was changing his story, prosecutors brought in the old jurors to testify of what they'd heard at the first trial. It was obvious to everyone watching, Jim had been just caught lying. It was an absolute bombshell and about as close to the real world Perry Mason courtroom moment as you can get. When it came to the subject of motive at the second trial, they kept it simple. They claimed Bruce was blackmailing Jim, but they never tried to prove exactly what the blackmail was about. In fact, the judge even barred witnesses from testifying about the specific nature of the blackmail Bruce had against Jim. According to Bruce's brother-in-law, the same one who'd stolen construction equipment from Jim, Bruce and Jim had come to an agreement. In order to keep Bruce from revealing certain information about Jim Hood, Jim would pay him $50,000 each month for six months, a grand total of $250,000. On the day of the shooting, Jim had lured Bruce down to his private office with the promise of $5,000. The cryptically threatening answering machine messages Bruce had left for Jim, along with the brother-in-law's testimony, made it irrefutably obvious that Bruce had been blackmailing Jim about something. And the prosecution's strategy of not directly tying the blackmail to Bonnie Hood's murder made it easier for the jury to accept their story. On December 9th, 1993, Jim Hood was found guilty of first-degree murder and given a sentence of 27 years to life behind bars. In the end, there is still a multitude of mysteries surrounding this one-of-a-kind case. Mysteries we're not likely to ever truly get answers to. In the case of Bonnie Hood, because no one was ever convicted of a murder, her case is still technically open, although authorities don't consider it unsolved and have stopped investigating it. In their eyes, it happened exactly the way they laid it out at Jim's first trial. Jim hired Bruce, and Bruce killed Bonnie for a $50,000 payday. But Jim was never prosecuted for it, 
and no jury has ever officially found this story to be credible. In fact, the jury in Tulare County flat out rejected the idea that Bruce had murdered anyone at all. For the past 33 years, Jim has continuously and adamantly maintained his complete innocence in his wife's murder. But for the murder of Bruce Beecham, Jim Hood served 23 years in prison before being paroled in 2017. There's also the lingering mystery of what exactly the blackmail was that Bruce was hanging over Jim's head. After all, the idea that it had anything to do with Bonnie's murder was again never proven in court. All we know for sure was whatever it was, it must have represented an existential threat to Jim's way of life. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, after Bruce Beecham was found not guilty for Bonnie's murder, he must have realized he'd found the golden ticket. Regardless of whether or not any of the accusations against him or Jim Hood were even true, even if Jim was 100% innocent, Bruce could have still threatened to point the finger at him anyway. Or is it also possible Bruce may have been threatening to expose sensitive information about Jim we don't even know about? I think he underestimated Jim Hood to his peril. I think Bruce Beecham had to be dealt with if Jim Hood was to go on and live his life the way he wanted to. He'd have to go. There's no other scenario other than Jim Hood finding a way to eliminate the threat that Bruce Beecham posed to his whole world. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And we have a, well, not so gently named podcast called Stop the Killing. Yep, there's a clue in the title. We need your help to end the global mass shooting epidemic. Find out how as we bring you the stories right from the source. If you would have told me that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, I would have said no way. I remember just thinking, he's got a gun. Something rose up inside, and I said, not my school. What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. My little boy, Alex, was murdered. If we can fix the failures, we can save lives. My daughter, Elena, was killed. She'd want me to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. Join us and be part of the solution. Subscribe now to Stop the Killing podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your true crime podcasts. And before I close out the show, I want to give a shout out to Tanisha, Tanika, and Dr. S. Thanks for being awesome. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.